This is the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Tom Church, and the Libertarian is Professor Richard Epstein. Richard is the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow here at the Hoover Institution. He's the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU, and he's a senior lecturer at the University of Chicago. And Richard, we found out last night that the State of the Union is strong, as it was President Biden's first State of the Union address, and that is, of course, how every State of the Union uh, ends. Now, understandably, the president led with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and I want to ask you about two things here. We're, we're a week into worldwide reactions, and Kiev still hasn't fallen, although many warn that it still probably will. I'd like to know what kind of new reactions you'd like to see from the United States and European allies. And then really quickly, you mentioned in your column that the United States shouldn't renounce in advance the use of force, but we've already mentioned or already declared that U.S. soldiers won't be on the ground and we won't be imposing a no-fly zone with any of our aircraft. So can you explain a little further what you mean by by not renouncing that? Yeah, I mean, look... One of the problems that you have, and we talked about this abstractly on one of our previous shows, is if you look to the sort of classical liberal theory of what it means to use force, what you discover is that when you're treaty bound, as we are not because uh, Ukraine is not in NATO yet, I may never be, uh, you're not bound to help people, but you're always entitled to help people. And when you're entitled to help people, there's nothing about the theory which tells you how you ought to help. In some cases, it's real easy, like like, for example, if you get rid of all the ridiculous restrictions, which had never been put into place in initially on the production and, and international transmission of oil, what you could do is essentially starve the Russians by boycotting them and just turn the tables. They need the West as much as the West needs them. It was always thought that the West would create shortages systematically in its own land, which gave the Russians the whip hand. You can reverse that completely. And there's nothing about this which even involves any action associated with the war of war. And in fact, so many commentators have said in so many plaintive tones, look, this is absolutely madness. You're not helping us even in peacetime. You're certainly not going to help us in wartime. And the thing that you always say about war is when you start making peacetime mistakes in war, they're magnified in terms of their significance. So if it's a $1 trillion mistake when you don't have the war, it's a $10 trillion mistake when you do have the war. Uh, Biden, I think, is largely oblivious to that. The good news on this front is the Germans, at least the Green Party seems to announce some rethinking of its position. Their policies have been every bit as insane as the American policies. Shut down your domestic sources and then make yourself dependent upon Gazprom. Uh, we're not going to do that anymore. So I think that's one area. Uh, the banking system is, I think, pretty much there. I, I think what's going to happen is you're going to see lots of efforts, some of them internally generated by firms, some imposed, in which business after business essentially disinvested some financial cost uh, from the Russian situation leaving them high and dry. How long ought to this to run? I think the answer is it doesn't stop when combat stops. Uh, all of these sanctions only stop at the time when Russia decides to withdraw from the Ukraine, at which point there will be, I think, a very difficult and nasty issues of what kind of reparations a broken country, which the Soviet Union or the Russians are, owes to a country which they managed to systematically decimate. And I think reparations is one of the issues that, strangely enough, has to be put on the table. Uh, you mentioned the other question was, uh, do you announce in advance what your intentions are? And let me just take the question and be a little bit more literal than you meant it to be. 
What you said is that Biden announced that he would not put forces on the ground in the Ukraine. And now I'm going to give you the following hypothetical and see whether or not this is consistent with that pledge or not. Uh, what happens is he has shifted tactics. That is Putin. Uh, wretched as he always is, he doesn't think that he can actually occupy by having the troops march downtown. Tanks are utterly useless on city streets, and he understands that. His infantry will be cut up in a million different ways because everybody there is armed to their teeth with guns, grenades, Molotov cocktails, and so forth. So he's trying to submit the, so basically force the place to submit uh, to his rule by using heavy artillery. So suppose we sent the Air Force in and saying, look, you're now breaking your promise. You said you would never attack civilians' facilities, and you certainly are doing that now. We're going to take you out. And we're not putting troops on the ground. We're only giving close air support. Is that or is that not consistent? Well, I think Putin would go seething crazy mad. Uh, but one of the things that you happen when you try to bind yourself is now you have to wiggle out semantically from one of these situations where I think what he should have said is, look, we have no present plans to use this situation or these kinds of forces. But if this thing turns out to be a way which is utterly impossible, we will go. Remember, we've already crossed the line. We're not neutrals in this thing. Somebody inside the United States, maybe not the government, is running all sorts of cyber attacks, what's going on. We've imposed financial sanctions. We've given extensive military support. Um, we basically, these could be regarded as acts of war against the Russians. They choose not to retaliate against us exactly, and we against them. Nobody at this point knows the difference between a war and a police action. Everybody is very dangerous about calling it a war for fear that it would trigger, for example, NATO obligations under Section 5 of the Great Treaty, which says collective security, one nation is attacked. We all intervene until the UN solves this thing. Not going to happen so long as Russia is the uh, rotating chair of the Security Council. So I'm against doing that. I think, in effect, what you have to do is to give yourself a little bit more flexibility. Um, uh, Biden is not the man I want leading anything, as you well know. And the real question that you have to ask, since it's so uncertain, is who is advising him and how good are they? Uh, Thus far, I think it's fair to say that he has not committed since this war began any kind of strategic mistake or blunder, which is incurable, irreversible. Uh, Who's ever advising him should continue to advise him. I think the American public has essentially gotten behind him. Uh, I recall listening to really stupid statements by people like Tucker Carlson, who ought to know better, um, starting to say that it's not an American concern. Uh, But I think people now understand that the isolation argument simply does not work. Uh, These are very tall dominoes, and they could fall a very long way. And the interdependence of what happens in Ukraine with our allies and the rest of Europe is sufficiently important that we just can't ignore this thing. And so there's a kind of a noble unity of purpose, which is finally taking place in the United States and the Western world. And one just hopes that that not only is sufficient to turn the tide in this particular instance, but it's sufficient to lead to greater realism going forward. Because remember, we're not out of this woods by a long way. There's still Taiwan. There's still all the uneasiness in the Middle East. There's still the very dangerous situation with respect to the North Korean. What I think has to happen is the West has to gird for war. If you recall, and I'll just end on this note, when we got out of Afghanistan in this calamitous way, uh, Mr. Biden said, we are not at war. 
for the first time. How short-sighted could that possibly be? Because what he did is has such a display of incompetence and moral emptiness uh, that it encouraged all of our enemies to be more aggressive than they might have otherwise had been. And so the ghost of Afghanistan still runs strong. He will never acknowledge it, but I think the American people better change their position quickly and decisively on this issue. And fortunately, it seems that we are willing as a nation to do so. Let's move on to talk about the domestic side of the equation where President Biden addressed the rapid inflation we've been experiencing, the record inflation really since the early 80s. However, I I will note President Biden immediately went on to talk about passing the American Rescue Plan from last March. Now, if you recall, this was the $1.9 trillion spending bill that many economists believe to be at least partially responsible for our (laughs) inflationary woes. Uh, President Biden's response to inflation seemed to be a shift to buying American-made products and trying to get American companies to build more things here. How would you grade that as a method of of tackling or reducing inflation? Um, It shows a complete, utter, and total ignorance on every relevant topic. It's a solid F. I mean, the man has learned nothing about anything from anybody. I think the way in which uh, Biden thinks about things, he still regards himself as doing ward politics in Scranton, Pennsylvania, or Wilmington, Delaware. And the first question you have to ask is, whose lapels do you tug on in order to make some kind of a deal? Uh, because what he does is he treats inflation as though it's the kind of dispute that exists between two particular parties. And if you adjust the terms of the price in one way or another, all of this will go away. And so what happens is he says, we have to buy America. We can't essentially lower costs. We have to lower costs um, and raise wages. How you do the two things together, he never explained. What he doesn't understand is all of these private transactions uh, may shift modestly the cost of inflation from one party to another, but the basic phenomenon is systematic and it's monetary. How many dollars at what velocity are chasing how many goods? Well, there are two ways in which you could think of that. The first is getting more goods so as to reduce the problem. And to the extent that he starts talking about buy American, he's making the same mistake that was made from the time of the smooth holy tariff. If you don't allow Americans to buy cheap foreign goods, domestic prices are going to increase for American customers. And the cost of goods that you want to sell overseas are going to increase because you have inferior products at higher prices. And so you're going to deaden the domestic market and the foreign market. What you have to do is to understand that gains from trade take place. And one of the really beneficial features of having open borders is something that Biden can never tolerate. He's the most pro-union president in the land, and unions can only supply if they survive if there's a degree of monopoly protection given to them, which is what tariffs do. The nation can only survive if you remove those particular tariffs and make the unions, like everybody else, worry more about efficiency than the monopoly restraint. So he gets anything and everything with respect to this issue completely, totally, and utterly wrong. Now, why does he do this? It's because he's basically an uneducated man. Uh, And what he does, in effect, is he kind of looks at immediate stimuli and his past history. In this regard, he's remarkably like Donald Trump, who's made many of the same kinds of mistakes, or Barack Obama with his American resource plan back in 2009 and 2010. So this is endemic American policy. Uh, What happens is you try to do this on a very personal appeal, and that gets it wrong, too. So let me just give you what the scenario is. Uh, Somebody comes up and says, we're going to close this plant down. And we're going to send these goods off to Mexico. 
And the argument that immediately comes back is if we don't let the send this business off to Mexico, they're going to stay in the United States and keep this particular plan open. Wrong. Uh, the question that they will then ask is that we can't take our first alternative. What's our second or our third alternative? And if the plant is too expensive, what happens is they may go to a different state. They may increase the level of automation. They may consolidate two plants into one plan. They may shut the entire business down into bankruptcy. But the one thing that is told to you when they're thinking about going overseas is that the status quo is not tenable. You remove the foreign option. The status quo is still untenable. And lots of things are going to happen. And so you don't try to do this. What you try to do is to say, okay, these plants are going there. You want to keep them or bring new companies in. What can you do to improve your own business climate so that people are willing to stay? And it's not every state that loses people to or business to uh, Mexico or to China or to anywhere else. Um, you look at a place like Tennessee, rather different from the situation in Illinois. Why is that? Because they don't have the progressive burdens upon them in terms of the way in which they do their state domestic policy. One of the things that's a very good litmus test of how stupid or sensible policies turn out to be is you look at the fate of different states. And in the United States, there's a pretty sharp contrast right now between certain blue states that are constantly floundering and some red states that are doing very well. So California often on death support. Illinois, the less said, the better. Uh, New York State, real trouble. New Jersey, it's not going so good. Then you look at Tennessee and you look at Texas and you look at Florida and you look at Alabama and you look at South Carolina and you look at Utah. Uh, they're all red states and essentially they're open for business. And if you understand that the difference between state burdens is enormous, notwithstanding the fact that there's a huge federal burden, then you get it. Because why is this the case? Let's assume the federal burden is 60. Um, and it turns out that one state adds five and the other state adds 20. Well, now you've got a 15-point advantage, but it's only about a you know 12% advantage. If you didn't have the federal government, then there would be a four-to-one advantage. What they're telling you, in effect, is notwithstanding the fact that you've got a common set of federal burdens on you, the state differentials at the margin really, really start to matter. And I don't think that Joe Biden could give a definition of marginal cost or marginal benefit um, if it turned out that his life... Um, basically depended upon it. He's a palm and he's had no job whatsoever in the private sector and he doesn't know what it's about and he doesn't even want to learn. Now, Trump knew about the private sector and on many areas was much more efficient and sensible than was Biden. But he's also a man who learns about the world through his own experiences. And since all these foreign companies made life difficult for him, he's in favor of protective tariffs as well. Always short term, never long term. And what's going to happen is everybody in Congress, Democrats and Republicans alike, have to tell Mr. Biden, you want to incur inflation. The last thing you want to do is enact the programs that you put into place. You increase the money supply and you reduce the stock of goods. You're hurting this country in two particular ways. And the fact that he feels our pain doesn't mean that he's doing anything whatsoever to alleviate it. Richard, we still haven't passed a budget for fiscal year 2022, which uh, I'll note started back in October of last year. We've been uh, operating on continuing resolutions. The president's budget for fiscal year 2023 is one month late. It usually shows up in early February or so. Now, last year's budget was aspirational from the president because that's what presidential budgets are, but they didn't move on from there. Um, we, that's why we're still fighting about it, why we still don't have a budget. 
Do you think when President Biden releases a budget, we'll see anything new? Do you think we'll see learning from last year? What would you like to see uh, highlighted as priorities? Well, look, I think if you ask me one characteristic of the president, which makes him a particularly inept president, is his extraordinary stubbornness on just about everything. Um, I have not seen from a man who's supposed to understand the art of compromise a single kind of public concession that he makes. Um, everything that gets out of him is pulled out of him. Um, he's already lost the proposal, and then he tries to do a compromise. It's the same thing that happened with Afghanistan. There wasn't a single person in the military circle who thought he was doing the right thing. Even if people were in favor of pulling out, they didn't want to do it the way he wanted to pull it out, and many people were not in favor of doing it. And so the man is old. He's rigid. He's frighteningly stubborn. So I don't expect to see any change from him. The real question is going to be as to whether or not the Democratic Party can stage some kind of a quasi-coup. And what I mean by that is obviously not to dispose the president, but to take the advice of somebody like Brett Stevens, who's, you know, a man who's too much of an anti-Trumper, but reasonably astute on a lot of other issues. And when he said to Biden is you got to start over, get rid of everybody, essentially. New team, fresh thinking. And that starts with his chief of staff. It goes, unfortunately, to his very disappointing Merrick Garland as attorney general. It certainly goes to the uh, Lloyd Austin, who's the head of the, what should I call it, the, the Defense Department. It goes to Blinken, who's been completely ineffective. It goes to Janet Yellen. You have to get people who are essentially a bit more pragmatic, a bit more bipartisan. You've got to introduce a Republican or two inside your cabinet. And you have to listen to people who are going to tell you, Mr. President, you've now been in office for over 13 months, almost 14 months, and everything in the United States today is worse, both in terms of current performance and future aspiration than it was when you took office. Uh, the downturn began when, with great confidence, you decided to shut down the Keystone Pipeline, whereas what we need now is energy flexibility. Uh, the slow walking on all the fracking devices has been terrible. The inflationary policy is terrible. His labor policy is utterly disastrous. He has not done anything right. And the only way is going to get it right is not to figure out, well, what little concession do I make to make the Democrats a little bit more happy with me and the Republicans a little bit less angry? He has to go to the boundary line and start over. Uh, does that mean he has to become a Republican? No, I don't think he has to do that at all. Uh, but if he's trying to figure out who we should start to look like, let him think of the Bill Clinton of 1992, 1993, the guy who was frightened to death of what the bond markets would do in reaction to what he said, who thought about you know, affirmative action. We don't end it to be sure, but we mend it. Uh, very different from what's going on here. Clinton himself has gone much further over the edge, but for the Democrats to rule, they have to rule from the center left, with the bigger word being center and the smaller bird being left. But what's happened is they've left the center quite literally, and they become a hard left party. And if they want to survive the next election, they have to change it. If you wanted me to give a guess as to what the estimate was on their keeping the party or keeping the Congress virtually zero in both houses, and I think they could lose as many as five or six in the Senate and 40 or 50 in the House, and even that could get worse if the things don't resolve in the foreign affairs and if the inflation continues to Sunday. So he has to stop, think, and start over again. And the question is, the guy is over 78. He's never been particularly agile. He gets confused. He doesn't know the difference between the Ukraine and Iran in some kinds of his conversation. It's going to be a very hard haul. Uh, but somebody, probably his wife, is going to sit down to him and say, Guy, 
You have messed this up really in a big time way. You have to be the guy that people thought they elected, the central compromising, pragmatic Democrat who will never push too far, who will keep people like AOC and Bernie Sanders at arm's length. You've not been that guy. You better become that guy or you're toast. You've been listening to the Libertarian Podcast with Richard Epstein. Remember, you can read Richard's column, The Libertarian, on defining ideas at whoa.org every week. If you enjoyed this conversation, please share it with your friends and rate the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're tuning in. For Richard Epstein, I'm Tom Church. Thanks for listening. podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.